0: CHAPTER Five, THE MENTAL UNIVERSE THE UNIVERSE IS MENTAL, HELD IN THE MIND OF THE ALL THE KABALIAN The All is spirit. But what is spirit? This question cannot be answered, for the reason that its definition is practically that of the All, which cannot be explained or defined. SPIRIT IS SIMPLY A NAME THAT MEN GIVE TO THE HIGHEST CONCEPTION OF INFINITE LIVING MIND. IT MEANS THE REAL ESSENCE. IT MEANS LIVING MIND, AS MUCH SUPERIOR TO LIFE AND MIND AS WE KNOW THEM, AS THE LATTER ARE SUPERIOR TO MECHANICAL ENERGY AND MATTER. SPIRIT TRANSCENDS OUR UNDERSTANDING, AND WE USE THE TERM MERELY, THAT WE MAY THINK OR SPEAK OF THE ALL. FOR THE PURPOSES OF THOUGHT AND UNDERSTANDING, We are justified in thinking of spirit as infinite living mind, at the same time acknowledging that we cannot fully understand it. We must either do this or stop thinking of the matter at all. Let us now proceed to a consideration of the nature of the universe, as a whole and in its parts. What is the universe? We have seen that there can be nothing outside of the all. Then is the universe the all? No. This cannot be because the universe seems to be made up of many, and is constantly changing, and in other ways it does not measure up to the ideas that we are compelled to accept, regarding the All, as stated in our last lesson. Then if the universe be not the All, then it must be nothing. Such is the inevitable conclusion of the mind at first thought. But this will not satisfy the question, for we are sensible of the existence of the universe. Then if the universe is neither the all nor nothing, what can it be? Let us examine this question. If the universe exists at all, or seems to exist, it must proceed in some way from the all. It must be a creation of the all. But as something can never come from nothing, from what could the all have created it? Some philosophers have answered this question by saying that the all created the universe from itself that is, from the being and substance of the All. But this will not do. For the All cannot be subtracted from, nor divided, as we have seen. And then again, if this be so, would not each particle in the universe be aware of its being the All? The All could not lose its knowledge of itself, nor actually become an atom, or blind force, or lowly living thing. Some men, indeed, realizing that the All is indeed All, and also recognizing that they, the men, existed, have jumped to the conclusion that they and the all were identical, and they have filled the air with shouts of, I am God, to the amusement of the multitude and the sorrow of sages. The claim of the corpuscle that I am man would be modest in comparison. But what indeed is the universe if it be not the all? not yet created by the all having separated itself into fragments. What else can it be? Of what else can it be made? This is the great question. Let us examine it carefully. We find here that the principle of correspondence, see lesson one, comes to our aid here. The old hermetic axiom, as above, so below, may be pressed into service at this point. Let us endeavor to get a glimpse of the workings on higher planes by examining those on our own. The principle of correspondence must apply to this as well as to other problems. Let us see. On his own plane of being, how does man create? Well, first he may create by making something out of outside materials. But this will not do, for there are no materials outside of the all with which it may create. Well, then secondly, man procreates or reproduces his kind by the process of begetting, which is self-multiplication, accomplished by transferring a portion of his substance to his offspring. But this will not do, because the all cannot transfer or subtract a portion of itself, nor can it reproduce or multiply itself. In the first place there would be a taking away and in the second case a multiplication or addition to the all, both thoughts being an absurdity. Is there no third way in which man creates? Yes, there is. He creates mentally, and in so doing he uses no outside materials, nor does he reproduce himself, and yet his spirit pervades the mental creation. Following the principle of correspondence, we are justified in considering that The all creates the universe mentally, in a manner akin to the process whereby man creates mental images, and here is where the report of reason tallies precisely with the report of the illumined, as shown by their teachings and writings, such are the teachings of the wise men, such was the teaching of Hermes. The all can create in no other way except mentally, without either using material, and there is none to use or else reproducing itself, which is also impossible. There is no escape from this conclusion of the reason, which, as we have said, agrees with the highest teachings of the illumined. Just as you, student, may create a universe of your own in your mentality, so does the all-create-universes in its own mentality. But your universe is the mental creation of a finite mind, whereas that of the all is the creation of an infinite. The two are similar in kind, but definitely different in degree. We shall examine more closely into the process of creation and manifestation as we proceed, but this is the point to fix in your minds at this stage. The universe, and all it contains, is a mental creation of the all. Verily, indeed, all is mind. The All creates, in its infinite mind, countless universes, which exist for aeons of time. And yet, to the All, the creation, development, decline, and death of a million universes is as the time of the twinkling of an eye. The Cabalion. The infinite mind of the All is the womb of universes. The Kabbalion The principle of gender, see lesson one, and other lessons to follow, is manifested on all planes of life, material, mental, and spiritual. But, as we have said before, gender does not mean sex. Sex is merely a material manifestation of gender. Gender means relating to generation or creation, and whenever anything is generated or created, on any plane, The principle of gender must be manifested, and this is true even in the creation of universes. Now, do not jump to the conclusion that we are teaching that there is a male and female god or creator. That idea is merely a distortion of the ancient teachings on the subject. The true teaching is that the All in itself is above gender, as it is above every other law, including those of time and space. It is the law from which the laws proceed, and it is not subject to them. But when the all manifests on the plane of generation or creation, then it acts according to law and principle, for it is moving on a lower plane of being, and consequently it manifests the principle of gender, in its masculine and feminine aspects, on the mental plane of course." This idea may seem startling to some of you who hear it for the first time, but you have all really passively accepted it in your everyday conceptions. You speak of the fatherhood of God, and the motherhood of nature, of God the divine father, and nature the universal mother, and have thus instinctively acknowledged the principle of gender in the universe. Is this not so? But the hermetic teaching does not imply a real duality. The all is one. The two aspects are merely aspects of manifestation. The teaching is that the masculine principle manifested by the all stands, in a way, apart from the actual mental creation of the universe. It projects its will toward the feminine principle, which may be called nature, whereupon the latter begins the actual work of the evolution of the universe, from simple centers of activity on to man and then on and on still higher, all according to well-established and firmly enforced laws of nature. If you prefer the old figures of thought, you may think of the masculine principle as God, the Father, and of the feminine principle as nature, the Universal Mother, from whose womb all things have been born. This is more than a mere poetic figure of speech. It is an idea of the actual process of the creation of the universe. But always remember that the all is but one, and that in its infinite mind, the universe is generated, created, and exists. It may help you to get the proper idea if you will apply the law of correspondence to yourself and your own mind. You know that the part of you which you call I, in a sense, stands apart and witnesses the creation of mental images in your own mind, the part of your mind in which the mental generation is accomplished may be called the me, in distinction from the I, which stands apart and witnesses and examines the thoughts, ideas, and images of the me. As above, so below, remember. And the phenomena of one plane may be employed to solve the riddles of higher or lower planes. Is it any wonder that you, the child, feel that instinctive reverence for the all, which feeling we call religion? that respect and reverence for the father-mind, is it any wonder that, when you consider the works and wonders of nature, you are overcome with a mighty feeling which has its roots away, down in your inmost being. It is the mother-mind that you are pressing close up to, like a babe to the breast. Do not make the mistake of supposing that the little world you see around you, the earth, which is a mere grain of dust in the universe, is the universe itself. There are millions upon millions of such worlds, and greater. And there are millions of millions of such universes in existence within the infinite mind of the all. And even in our own little solar system, there are regions and planes of life far higher than ours, and beings compared to which we earthbound mortals are as the slimy life-forms that dwell on the ocean's bed, when compared to man. There are beings with powers and attributes, higher than man has ever dreamed of the gods possessing. And yet these beings were once as you, and still lower, and you will be even as they, and still higher in time, for such is the destiny of man as reported by the illumined. And death is not real, even in the relative sense. It is but birth to a new life, and you shall go on and on and on to higher and still higher planes of life, For aeons upon aeons of time. The universe is your home, and you shall explore its farthest recesses before the end of time. You are dwelling in the infinite mind of the All, and your possibilities and opportunities are infinite, both in time and space. And at the end of the grand cycle of aeons, when the All shall draw back into itself all of its creations, you will go gladly for you will then be able to know the whole truth of being at one with the all. Such is the report of the Illumined, those who have advanced well along the path, and, in the meantime, rest calm and serene. You are safe and protected by the infinite power of the father-mother mind. Within the father-mother mind, mortal children are at home. The Cabalion. There is not one who is fatherless nor motherless in the universe. The Kabbalion Chapter 6 The Divine Paradox The half-wise, recognizing the comparative unreality of the universe, imagine that they may defy its laws. Such are vain and presumptuous fools and they are broken against the rocks and torn asunder by the elements, by reason, of their folly. The truly wise, knowing the nature of the universe, use law against laws, the higher against the lower, and, by the art of alchemy, transmute that which is undesirable into that which is worthy, and thus triumph. Mastery consists not in abnormal dreams, visions, and fantastic imaginings or living, but in using the higher forces against the lower, escaping the pains of the lower planes by vibrating on the higher. Transmutation, not presumptuous denial, is the weapon of the master. The Cabalion. This is the paradox of the universe, resulting from the principle of polarity which manifests when the all begins to create. Hearken to it, for it points the difference between half-wisdom and wisdom, while to the infinite all, the universe, its laws, its powers, its life, its phenomena, are as things witnessed in the state of meditation or dream. Yet to all that is finite, the universe must be treated as real, and life and action and thought must be based thereupon accordingly, although with an ever-understanding of the higher truth each according to its own plane and laws. Were the all to imagine that the universe were indeed reality, then woe to the universe! For there would be no escape from lower to higher. Divine word, then, would the universe become a fixity and progress would become impossible. And if man, owing to half-wisdom, acts and lives and thinks of the universe as merely a dream, akin to his own finite dreams, then indeed... Does it so become for him? And like a sleepwalker, he stumbles ever around and around in a circle, making no progress and being forced into an awakening at last by his falling, bruised and bleeding over the natural laws which he ignored. Keep your mind ever on the star, but let your eyes watch over your footsteps, lest you fall into the mire by reason of your upward gaze. Remember the divine paradox that, while the universe is not, still it is. Remember ever the two poles of truth, the absolute and the relative. Beware of half-truths. What hermetists know as the law of paradox is an aspect of the principle of polarity. The hermetic writings are filled with references to the appearance of the paradox in the consideration of the problems of life and being. The teachers are constantly warning their students against the error of omitting the other side of any question, and their warnings are particularly directed to the problems of the Absolute and the Relative, which perplex all students of philosophy, and which cause so many to think and act contrary to what is generally known as common sense, and we caution all students to be sure to grasp the divine paradox of the Absolute and Relative lest they become entangled in the mire of the half-truth. With this in view, this particular lesson has been written. Read it carefully. The first thought that comes to the thinking man after he realizes the truth that the universe is a mental creation of the all is that the universe and all that it contains is a mere illusion and unreality against which idea his instincts revolt. But this, like all other great truths, must be considered both from the absolute and the relative points of view. From the absolute viewpoint, of course, the universe is in the nature of an illusion, a dream, a phantasmagoria, as compared to the all in itself. We recognize this even in our ordinary view, for we speak of the world as a fleeting show that comes and goes, is born and dies, for the element of impermanence and change, finiteness, and unsubstantiality, must ever be connected with the idea of a created universe when it is contrasted with the idea of the All, no matter what may be our beliefs concerning the nature of both. Philosopher, metaphysician, scientist, and theologian all agree upon this idea, and the thought is found in all forms of philosophical thought and religious conceptions as well as in the theories of the respective schools of metaphysics and theology. So, the Hermetic teachings do not preach the unsubstantiality of the universe in any stronger terms than those more familiar to you, although their presentation of the subject may seem somewhat more startling. Anything that has a beginning and an end must be, in a sense, unreal and untrue, and the universe comes under the rule in all schools of thought. From the absolute point of view, there is nothing real except the All, no matter what terms we may use in thinking of or discussing the subject. Whether the universe be created of matter, or whether it be a mental creation in the mind of the All, it is unsubstantial, non-enduring, a thing of time, space, and change. We want you to realize this fact thoroughly before you pass judgment on the hermetic conception of the mental nature of the universe. Think over any and all of the other conceptions, and see whether this be not true of them. But the absolute point of view shows merely one side of the picture. The other side is the relative one. Absolute truth has been defined as, things as the mind of God knows them, while relative truth is, things as the highest reason of man understands them. And so, while to the all the universe must be unreal and illusionary, a mere dream or result of meditation. Nevertheless, to the finite minds forming a part of that universe and viewing it through mortal faculties, the universe is very real indeed, and must be so considered. In recognizing the absolute view, we must not make the mistake of ignoring or denying the facts and phenomena of the universe as they present themselves to our mortal faculties. We are not the all, remember. To take familiar illustrations, we all recognize the fact that matter exists to our senses. We will fare badly if we do not. And yet, even our finite minds understand the scientific dictum that there is no such thing as matter from a scientific point of view. That which we call matter is held to be merely an aggregation of atoms, which atoms themselves are merely a grouping of units of force called electrons or ions, vibrating and in constant circular motion. We kick a stone, and we feel the impact. It seems to be real, notwithstanding that we know it to be merely what we have stated above. But remember that our foot, which feels the impact by means of our brains, is likewise matter, so constituted of electrons. And for that matter, so are our brains. And, at the best, If it were not by reason of our mind, we would not know the foot or stone at all. Then again, the ideal of the artist or sculptor, which he is endeavoring to reproduce in stone or on canvas, seems very real to him. So do the characters in the mind of the author or dramatist, which he seeks to express so that others may recognize them. And if this be true in the case of our finite minds, what must be the degree of reality in the mental images created in the mind of the infinite? Oh, friends, this universe of mentality is very real indeed. It is the only one we can ever know, though we rise from plane to plane, higher and higher in it. To know it otherwise, but actual experience, we must be the all itself. It is true that the higher we rise in the scale, the nearer to the mind of the father we reach, the more apparent becomes the illusory nature of finite things. But not until the all finally withdraws us into itself does the vision actually vanish. So, we need not dwell upon the feature of illusion. Rather, let us, recognizing the real nature of the universe, seek to understand its mental laws and endeavor to use them to the best effect in our upward progress through life as we travel from plane to plane of being. The laws of the universe are, nonetheless, iron laws, because of the mental nature. All, except the All, are bound by them. What is in the infinite mind of the All is real, in a degree second only to that reality itself, which is vested in the nature of the All. So, do not feel insecure or afraid. We are all held firmly in the finite mind of the All, and there is naught to hurt us, or for us to fear. There is no power outside of the All to affect us, so we may rest calm and secure. There is a world of comfort and security in this realization when once attained. Then calm and peaceful do we sleep, rocked in the cradle of the deep, resting safely on the bosom of the ocean of infinite mind, which is the All. In the All, indeed, do we live and move and have our being. Matter is nonetheless matter to us, while we dwell on the plane of matter, although we know it to be merely an aggregation of electrons or particles of force vibrating rapidly and gyrating around each other in the formations of atoms, the atoms in turn vibrating and gyrating, forming molecules, which latter in turn form larger masses of matter. Nor does matter become less matter when we follow the inquiry still further and learn from the hermetic teachings that the force, of which the electrons are but units, is merely a manifestation of the mind of the all, and like all else in the universe, is purely mental in its nature. While on the plane of matter we must recognize its phenomena, we may control matter, as all masters of higher or lesser degree do, but we do so by applying the higher forces. We commit a folly when we attempt to deny the existence of matter in the relative aspect. We may deny its mastery over us, and rightly so, but we should not attempt to ignore it in its relative aspect, at least so long as we dwell upon its plane. Nor do the laws of nature become less constant or effective when we know them likewise to be merely mental creations. They are in full effect on the various planes. We overcome the lower laws by applying still higher ones, and in this way only. But we cannot escape law or rise above it entirely. Nothing but the all can escape law, and that because the all is law itself, from which all laws emerge. The most advanced masters may acquire the powers usually attributed to the gods of men, and there are countless ranks of being in the great hierarchy of life, whose being and power transcends even that of the highest masters among men, to a degree unthinkable by mortals. But even the highest master and the highest being must bow to the law, and be as nothing in the eye of the all, so that if even these highest beings whose powers exceed even those attributed by men to their gods, even if these are bound by and are subservient to law, then imagine the presumption of moral men, of our race and grade, when he dares to consider the laws of nature as unreal, visionary, and illusory, because he happens to be able to grasp the truth that the laws are mental in nature, and simply mental creations of the all. Those laws which the All intends to be governing laws are not to be defied or argued away. So long as the universe endures, will they endure. For the universe exists by virtue of these laws which form its framework and which hold it together. The hermetic principle of mentalism, while explaining the true nature of the universe upon the principle that All is Mental, does not change the scientific conceptions of the universe, life, or evolution. In fact, science merely corroborates the Hermetic teachings. The latter merely teaches that the nature of the universe is mental, while modern science has taught that it is material, or, of late, that it is energy at the last analysis. The Hermetic teachings have no fault to find with Herbert Spencer's basic principle, which postulates the existence of an infinite and eternal energy from which all things proceed. In fact, the Hermetics recognize in Spencer's philosophy the highest outside statement of the workings of the natural laws that have ever been promulgated, and they believe Spencer to have been a reincarnation of an ancient philosopher who dwelt in ancient Egypt thousands of years ago, and who later incarnated as Heraclitus, the Grecian philosopher who lived B.C. 500, and they regard his statement of the infinite and eternal energy as directly in the line of the Hermetic teachings always with the addition of their own doctrine that his energy is the energy of the mind of the all. With the master key of the Hermetic philosophy, the student of Spencer will be able to unlock many doors of the inner philosophical conceptions of the great English philosopher whose work shows the results of the preparation of his previous incarnations. His teachings regarding evolution and rhythm are in almost perfect agreement with the Hermetic teachings regarding the principle of rhythm. So, the student of Hermetics need not lay aside any of his cherished scientific views regarding the universe. All he is asked to do is grasp the underlying principle of the All is mind, the universe is mental, held in the mind of the All. He will find that the other six of the seven principles will fit into his scientific knowledge and will serve to bring out obscure points and to throw light in dark corners. This is not to be wondered at when we realize the influence of the hermetic thought of the early philosophers of Greece, upon whose foundations of thought the theories of modern science largely rest. The acceptance of the first hermetic principle, mentalism, is the only great point of difference between modern science and hermetic students, and science is gradually moving toward the hermetic position in its groping in the dark for a way out of the labyrinth into which it has wandered in its search for reality. The purpose of this lesson is to impress upon the minds of our students the fact that, to all intents and purposes, the universe and its laws and its phenomena are just as real, so far as man is concerned, as they would be under the hypotheses of materialism or energism. Under any hypothesis, the universe, in its outer aspect, is changing, ever-flowing and transitory, and therefore devoid of substantiality and reality. But, note the other pole of the truth, under the same hypothesis, we are compelled to act and live, as if the fleeting things were real and substantial. With this difference, always, between the various hypotheses, that, under the old views, mental power was ignored as a natural force, while under mentalism it becomes the greatest natural force, and this one difference revolutionizes life to those who understand the principle and its resulting laws and practice. So, finally, students all, grasp the advantage of mentalism, and learn to know, use, and apply the laws resulting therefrom, but do not yield to the temptation which, as the Kabbalion states, Overcomes the half wise, and which causes them to be hypnotized by the apparent unreality of things. The consequence being that they wander about like dream people, dwelling in a world of dreams, ignoring the practical work and life of man. The end being that they are broken against the rocks and torn asunder by the elements, by reason of their folly. Rather, follow the example of the wise, which the same authority states. Use law against laws, the higher against the lower, and by the art of alchemy transmute that which is undesirable into that which is worthy, and thus triumph. Following the authority, let us avoid the half-wisdom, which is folly, which ignores the truth that mastery consists not in abnormal dreams, vision, and fantastic imaginings or living, but in using the higher forces against the lower, Escaping the pains of the lower planes by vibrating on the higher. Remember always, student, that transmutation, not presumptuous denial, is the weapon of the master. The above quotations are from the Kybalion and are worthy of being committed to memory by the student. We do not live in a world of dreams, but in an universe which, while relative, is real so far as our lives and actions are concerned. Our business, In the universe is not to deny its existence, but to live, using the laws to rise from lower to higher, living on, doing the best that we can under the circumstances arising each day, and living, so far as possible, to our biggest ideas and ideals. The true meaning of life is not known to men on this plane, if indeed to any, but the highest authorities, and our own intuitions, teach us that we will make no mistake in living up to the best that is in us, so far as is possible, and realizing the universal tendency in the same direction, in spite of apparent evidence to the contrary. We are all on the path, and the road leads ever upward, with frequent resting places. Read the message of the Kabbalion, and follow the example of the wise, avoiding the mistake of the half-wise, who perish by reason of their folly. CHAPTER Seven, THE ALL IN ALL While all is in the all, it is equally true that the all is in all. To him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. THE KABALIAN How often have the majority of people heard repeated the statement that their deity, called by many names, was all in all. And how little have they suspected the inner occult truth concealed by these carelessly uttered words. The commonly used expression is a survival of the ancient hermetic maxim quoted above. As the Kabbalion says, To him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. And, this being so, let us seek this truth, the understanding of which means so much, in this statement of truth, this hermetic maxim, is concealed one of the greatest philosophical, scientific, and religious truths. We have given you the hermetic teaching regarding the mental nature of the universe, the truth that the universe is mental, held in the mind of the all. As the Cabalion says in the passage quoted above, all is in the all. But note also the correlated statement that it is equally true that the All is in All. This apparently contradictory statement is reconcilable under the Law of Paradox. It is, moreover, an exact hermetic statement of the relations existing between the All and its mental universe. We have seen how All is in the All. Now let us examine the other aspect of the subject. The hermetic teachings are to the effect that The all is imminent, in, remaining within, inherent, abiding within, its universe, and in every part, particle, unit, or combination within the universe. This statement is usually illustrated by the teachers, by a reference to the principle of correspondence. The teacher instructs the student to form a mental image of something, a person, an idea, something having a mental form the favorite example being that of the author or dramatist forming an idea of his characters, or a painter or sculptor forming an image of an ideal that he wishes to express by his art. In each case, the student will find that while the image has its existence and being solely within his own mind, yet he, the student, author, dramatist, painter or sculptor, is, in a sense, imminent in remaining within, or abiding within, the mental image also. In other words, the entire virtue, life, spirit, of reality in the mental image is derived from the imminent mind of the thinker. Consider this for a moment, until the idea is grasped. To take a modern example, let us say that Othello, Iago, Hamlet, Lear, Richard III, Existed merely in the mind of Shakespeare, at the time of their conception or creation. And yet, Shakespeare also existed within each of these characters, giving them their vitality, spirit, and action. Whose is the spirit of the characters that we know as Micawber, Oliver Twist, Uriah Heep? Is it Dickens? Or have each of these characters a personal spirit independent of their creator? Have the Venus of Medici, the Sistine Madonna, the Apollo Belvedere, spirits and reality of their own, or do they represent the spiritual and mental power of their creators? The law of paradox explains that both propositions are true, viewed from the proper viewpoints. Micawber is both Micawber and yet Dickens. And again, while Micawber may be said to be Dickens, yet Dickens is not identical with Micawber. Man, like Micawber, may exclaim, The spirit of my Creator is inherent within me, and yet I am not he. How different this from the shocking half-truth so vociferously announced by certain of the half-wise, who fill the air with their raucous cries of, I am God. Imagine poor Micawber or the sneaky Uriah Heap crying, I am Dickens, or some of the lowly clods in one of Shakespeare's plays, eloquently announcing that, I am Shakespeare. The all is in the earthworm, and yet the earthworm is far from being the all. And still the wonder remains, that though the earthworm exists merely as a lowly thing, created and having its being solely within the mind of the all, yet the all is imminent in the earthworm and in the particles that go to make up the earthworm. Can there be any greater mystery than this of all in the all, and the all in all? The student will, of course, realize that the illustrations given above are necessarily imperfect and inadequate, for they represent the creation of mental images and finite minds, while the universe is a creation of infinite mind, and the difference between the two poles separates them. And yet, it is merely a matter of degree. The same principle is in operation. The principle of correspondence manifests in each. As above, so below. As below, so above. And in the degree that man realizes the existence of the indwelling spirit, imminent within his being, so will he rise in the spiritual scale of life. This is what spiritual development means the recognition realization and manifestation of the spirit within us try to remember this last definition that of spiritual development it contains the truth of true religion there are many planes of being many subplanes of life many degrees of existence in the universe and all depend upon the advancement of beings in the scale of which scale the lowest point is the grossest matter the highest being separated only by the thinnest division from the spirit of the All. And, upward and onward along this scale of life, everything is moving. All are on the path, whose end is the All. All progress is a returning home. All is upward and onward, in spite of all seemingly contradictory appearances. Such is the message of the Illumined. The hermetic teachings concerning the process of the mental creation of the universe are that, at the beginning of the creative cycle, the all, in its aspect of being, projects its will toward its aspect of becoming, and the process of creation begins. It is taught that the process consists of the lowering of vibration until a very low degree of vibratory energy is reached, at which point the grossest possible form of matter is manifested. This process is called the stage of involution, in which the all becomes involved or wrapped up in its creation. This process is believed by the hermetists to have a correspondence to the mental process of an artist, writer, or inventor, who becomes so wrapped up in his mental creation as to almost forget his own existence, and who, for the time being, almost lives in his creation. If instead of wrapped we use the word wrapped, perhaps we will give a better idea of what is meant. This involuntary stage of creation is sometimes called the outpouring of the divine energy, just as the evolutionary state is called the indrawing. The extreme pole of the creative process is considered to be the furthest removed from the all, while the beginning of the evolutionary stage is regarded as the beginning of the return swing of the pendulum of rhythm a coming-home idea being held in all of the hermetic teachings. The teachings are that during the outpouring, the vibrations become lower and lower until finally the urge ceases and the return swing begins. But there is this difference, that while in the outpouring, the creative forces manifest compactly and as a whole, yet from the beginning of the evolutionary or indrawing stage, there is manifested the law of individualization, that is, the tendency to separate into units of force, so that finally, that which left the all as unindividualized energy returns to its source as countless highly developed units of life, having risen higher and higher in the scale by means of physical, mental, and spiritual evolution. The ancient Hermetists used the word meditation, in describing the process of the mental creation of the universe in the mind of the all. The word contemplation, also being frequently employed, but the idea intended seems to be that of the employment of the divine attention. Attention is a word derived from the Latin root meaning to reach out, to stretch out, and so the act of attention is really a mental reaching out, extension of mental energy, so that the underlying idea is readily understood when we examine into the real meaning of attention. The hermetic teachings regarding the process of evolution are that the All, having meditated upon the beginning of the creation, having thus established the material foundations of the universe, having thought it into existence, then gradually awakens or rouses from its meditation, and in so doing, starts into manifestation the process of evolution on the material mental and spiritual planes successively and in order thus the upward movement begins and all begins to move spiritward matter becomes less gross the units spring into being the combinations begin to form life appears and manifests in higher and higher forms and the mind becomes more and more in evidence the vibrations constantly becoming higher in short The entire process of evolution, in all of its phases, begins and proceeds according to the established laws of the indrawing process. All of this occupies aeons upon aeons of man's time, each aeon containing countless millions of years, but yet the illumined inform us that the entire creation, including involution and evolution of an universe, is but as the twinkle of the eye to the all. At the end of countless cycles of aeons of time, the all withdraws its attention, its contemplation and meditation of the universe, for the great work is finished, and all is withdrawn into the all, from which it emerged. But mystery of mysteries, the spirit of each soul is not annihilated, but is infinitely expanded. The created and the creator are merged. Such is the report of the illumined. The above illustration of the meditation and subsequent awakening from meditation of the all is of course but an attempt of the teachers to describe the infinite process by a finite example. And yet, as below, so above. The difference is merely in degree, and just as the all arouses itself from the meditation upon the universe, so does man in time, cease from manifesting upon the material plane, and withdraws himself more and more into the indwelling spirit, which is indeed the divine ego. There is one more matter of which we desire to speak in this lesson, and that comes very near to an invasion of the metaphysical field of speculation, although our purpose is merely to show the futility of such speculation. We allude to the question which inevitably comes to the mind of all thinkers who have ventured to seek the truth. The question is, why does the All create universes? The question may be asked in different forms, but the above is the gist of the inquiry. Men have striven hard to answer this question, but still there is no answer worthy of the name. Some have imagined that the All had something to gain by it, but this is absurd for what could the All gain that it did not already possess? Others have sought the answer in the idea that the All wished something to love, and others that it created for pleasure, or amusement, or because it was lonely, or to manifest its power, all puerile explanations and ideas belonging to the childish period of thought. Others have sought to explain the mystery by assuming that the All found itself compelled to create, by reason of its own internal nature, its creative instinct. This idea is in advance of the others, but its weak point lies in the idea of the all being compelled by anything, internal or external. If its internal nature or creative instinct compelled it to do anything, then the internal nature or creative instinct would be the absolute instead of the All, and so accordingly that part of the proposition falls. And yet, the All does create and manifest, and seems to find some kind of satisfaction in so doing, and it is difficult to escape the conclusion that in some infinite degree it must have what would correspond to an inner nature or creative instinct in man, with correspondingly infinite desire and will. It could not act unless it willed to act, and it would not will to act unless it desired to act, and it would not desire to act unless it obtained some satisfaction thereby. And all of these things would belong to an inner nature, and might be postulated as existing according to the law of correspondence. But, still, we prefer to think of the all as acting entirely free from any influence, internal as well as external. That is the problem which lies at the root of difficulty, and the difficulty that lies at the root of the problem. Strictly speaking, there cannot be said to be any reason whatsoever for the all to act, for a reason implies a cause, and the all is above cause and effect, except when it wills to become a cause, at which time the principle is set into motion. So, you see, the matter is unthinkable, just as the All is unknowable, just as we say the All merely is, so we are compelled to say that the All acts because it acts. At the last, the All is all reason in itself, all law in itself, all action in itself. And it may be said truthfully that the All is its own reason, its own law, its own act, or still further that the All, its reason, its act, is law, are one, all being names for the same thing. In the opinion of those who are giving you these present lessons, the answer is locked up in the inner self of the all, along with its secret of being. The law of correspondence, in our opinion, reaches only to that aspect of the all, which may be spoken of as the aspect of becoming. Back of that aspect is the aspect of being, in which all laws are lost in law. All principles merge into principle, and the all, principle and being, are identical, one and the same. Therefore metaphysical speculation on this point is futile. We go into the matter here merely to show that we recognize the question, and also the absurdity, of the ordinary answers of metaphysics and theology. In conclusion, it may be of interest to our students to learn that, while some of the ancient and modern Hermetic teachers have rather inclined in the direction of applying the principle of correspondence to the question, with the result of the inner nature, conclusion, still, the legends have it that Hermes the Great, when asked this question by his advanced students, answered them by pressing his lips tightly together, and saying, not a word, indicating that there was no answer, But then he may have intended to apply the axiom of his philosophy that the lips of wisdom are closed except to the ears of understanding, believing that even his advanced students did not possess the understanding which entitled them to the teaching. At any rate, if Hermes possessed the secret, he failed to impart it, and so far as the world is concerned, the lips of Hermes are closed regarding it. And where the great Hermes hesitated to speak, what mortal may dare to teach? But remember, that whatever be the answer to this problem, if indeed there be an answer, the truth remains that, while all is in the all, it is equally true that the all is in all. The teaching on this point is emphatic, and we may add the concluding words of the quotation, To him who truly understands this truth, hath come. GREAT KNOWLEDGE